back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... I'm Father Mitch. Adam. And I'm Daryl. And this week's episode is going to be about a few different people. Let's see. We got... I'm probably going to mispronounce all these names, but here we go. Colby. Not Kobe. <laughs> not Bryant. Padre Pio. And that guy, Charbel. I was about to say his last name, but I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Saint, Saint Charbel, yes. Was it, how do you pronounce Mock? Ma- Ma- Gluff, Mark Luth? I don't know. That's awful. So, I mean, and these guys are all saints. Yes. Yes, they're saints. Roman Catholic saints. That's right. Roman Catholic saints. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about their accomplishments, what they've done to change the world around them. I hope. Yes. Hopefully good things. Hopefully not bad things. So well, how do you want to kick this off, Father Darrell? Well, we've got these three Roman Catholic saints. In a couple weeks, we're going to do a couple Orthodox saints. And the idea is to expand the probable boundaries that shouldn't exist for a number of our listeners as it pertains to, one, the body of Christ, and then two, the nature of these people's lives and services to the Lord that is that are largely unknown to probably the majority of Protestants in the world. And so I hope that this, this is an insightful um, discussion, and it gives us opportunities also to lightly touch upon, I've got to say that out at the outset because we could go into in-depth here, but lightly touch upon some of the ideas that they had that Anglicans would not necessarily agree with, but it's part of these, these lives and the testimonies that shaped them that, that would give us calls. If, if people are interested, we could do an entire episode on, uh, but we will not be able to have time to go, go to in-depth today, like the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's one of them. But there's, there's, there's some other issues that will come up. But on the whole, I think this is going to be a very, very insightful and holy kind of conversation, I think. I think so, too. And um, the other thing is, if, if you look around YouTube and look for these guys that we're going to be talking about today, we, we might be the only people who don't talk about them like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yes. That's what most of this is like a very breathy voice. Yeah. Very gently talking about. No, they're very powerful acts. Actually, like it's it's really interesting. No, well let's um, let's kick it off with the the first in time of these three. Uh, we oh by the way, the ones that we're mentioning and the ones for the 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 Orthodox saints to bring up, most of them are going to be within the last 150 years because we want, we want to keep it a bit more contemporary because some of the stuff we're going to say about them sounds would sound unbelievable, and a thousand years ago someone would say, oh well that's just hagiography. Well. No, we actually have doctor's reports and medical clips and, 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 and newspaper clippings and et cetera, et cetera, for these guys. So that's one of the things. And you can go to, for these three, any kind of Catholic news agency, uh, Google, Wikipedia. I mean, you, you can s- discover a lot of, about these three fellows. So we'll start with St. Charbel. So uh, tell, us, tell us details about him, Adam. Yeah, so uh, first to kind of put him in, in time, he was born in May of uh, 1828, and he ended up uh, passing away at the ripe old age of 70 uh, in 1898. So that just puts us within this window, his, his life. Yeah, so that, that's kind of his, his lifetime. But I think the a little bit different than the other two is a lot of why he becomes a saint happens after that time. <laughs> well, yeah, because he, he's from Lebanon and he's part of um, the monks. There's there's monks over there and he lives essentially in an isolated way. He's that kind of monk. He's not, there's community there, but they live in their own individual cells. And he gets known for his prayers for healing and the people that are healed in the village that are ne- that's next to the monastery. And there's a few few accounts that say that he is, uh, you know, they come to have him pray for the, for people to come down to the village, and he won't do it. You know, he says kind of basically, go back, uh, and, the, and they go back, and the people that have needed to be healed are. And there's uh, a couple accounts that, that I, I'm aware of where he goes to the town to pray for them. So he gets known for those kinds of, of healing graces while he's living essentially as a hermit, uh, not active in the community, so to speak. And this expresses an aspect of Michael Ramsey's uh, teaching on the body of Christ in the gospel in the Catholic Church, where Ramsey talks about monasticism as that part of our Lord's life where our Lord spends 40 days in the desert 
But part of the ongoing life of the body of Christ in history is monasticism itself as a continuation of his experience in the desert. So while we aren't called, the majority of us, into monasticism like that, we are the recipients of it. And when we go and we look at a guy like Charbel, here's a fellow who lived a life of you know, isolated monasticism in many ways. And then the testimony of that life seen in the signs and wonders that happen after he, he, he passes on. So uh, why don't you give us a couple of those? So, I mean, a lot, I think you kind of, you summed it up really well. People were literally coming to the monastery for healing. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes he'd go, sometimes he wouldn't. A lot of times, either way, people were getting healed. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember too, like there's no Advil. There's no Tylenol. There's no fever reducers. There's there's nothing that we take for granted today for those for things that are like quickly resolvable. None of that exists in his lifetime. So, I mean, we say, oh, well, they got healed of a fever. Big deal. Yes, big deal. Very big deal at the time. So the, I think not only did, during his life did he have like a very effective healing ministry. I guess what we would say is effective healing ministry, even though it was like almost unintentional. Well, yeah, because think about the difference in the contemporary approach to the gifts of the Spirit. This guy would have been setting up his own website called saintcharbel.org or charbelgodsmiracleman.com, you know, uh, and you would go to his crusades and... As you were walking up the, the platform to be healed, you know, he'd, uh, he'd throw his, some portion of his monkly habit at you and the anointing would hit you and you'd hit the ground and you'd roll and you'd be healed. I, I realize I'm saying things that are like, what are you talking about? But jump on the TV or the radio and listen to the healing evangelists since the tent revivals in the 1940s and 50s and the way that they approached how they would be stewards of God's healing graces are very, very, very different than a guy like this. Who's, ex- who's intentionally avoiding public accolade. And this is an important thing for people who are pursuing God and want to be used by God in miraculous ways. Th- they end up confusing their desire for the miraculous with God's gift. And that, that's a distinction to keep in mind. So, But tell us about some of the stuff that happens after he, after he dies. So it actually, it, the really interesting thing is... Um, he he dies on Christmas Eve, and so uh, that's not where the interesting part happens. Just for you, like, oh, that's not interesting. That's not about Santa yeah, Claus and elves. Though. No, it's not. It's com- something completely different. And okay. so the day that he dies, uh, there is a massive snowstorm. Okay, it, it is just so so bad that they can't even bring like they can't even move his body. Like their palm, like we like they could barely get there to move his body. But as they began to transport his body to the monastery. The, like the like literally the storm stops so it's really interesting so it's kind of like from the get-go it's like all right there's something different about this and we're going to see that there's something different about what's happening to even to his body like okay. his physical remains and um so they go Wait, I, th- I thought jesus only wanted to save our souls yeah the physical doesn't matter i don't oh, know okay. I, i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this okay. yeah all right. i got you um that's sarcasm for those that can't see my face or don't know me. Um, so, and then it continues on. So after he is put in his tomb. Um, this is in like 1898, 1899. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Christmas Day, 1898. So the next day. Okay. Yeah. I got you. So um, a, a little bit later, a few months after his death, a bright light was seen surrounding his tomb. Okay. So they're like, okay. So after that bright light was seen, they're like, well, this is odd you know, let's open it up. And so they open it up and they see that his body is still intact. So it's, it's not, only been one day though. Well, no, this is a few months later. So okay. like the next day when like, he's actually like, like the snowstorm and he's brought to like his, where he's going to be buried. That's when like the snow stops everything. And then a few, like they bury him after that, which is, they thought that was odd. They're like, okay, I guess it was just a break in the storm, you know, coincidence. Okay. But a few months later is when they see the bright light. Okay. And they see that his body hasn't decomposed at all. It's like he's still alive. Like it's like the the moment where he like passed. Um, this is called incorrupt, by the way. For those that are unfamiliar with this particular kind of grace, it's when the body does not decay. And this goes back into Christian history all the way back to St. Columba, who was was it three hundred and twenty five years? There was it was hundreds of years his body's his body did not decay. It's called incorrupt. So, and the other interesting thing about it is like, okay, well, his body's not decaying. Like, wow, they have, you know, 
some some good formaldehyde or whatever. Like you know, this is this is some good stuff. Like they use premium stuff. No, it, he was his body also had no rigor mortis, so he had complete flexibility. It was like it, it was it was incredible. It was like he was still alive. But, yeah. he, but he was like, he's like, he's clearly dead. But it's like his body retained. It wasn't. It was completely incorrupt, and like not even were his his muscles and joints tightening and and suffering from the effects. And this is months after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Months after. And so about fifty years later is where we really it, it really starts to take off. Well, another note is that they see this um this fluid seeping from months him. later. So at that point they were already seeing that. Okay. That's, that's when they were starting to see that. Um, but then. So they're like, oh, this is this is interesting. So fifty, like another fifty years, pretty much passed by. So this is like in the, in the years nineteen fifty and nineteen fifty two. Okay, they open his tomb back up, and guess what they find? He isn't like fifty years later. His body has not decomposed. Once again, still flex. It is like he is alive, but he's not. Like his body. And there's photos of this at this point. Yes, yeah. they're like this. This this one starts to get really documented. Um, it was documented like right at the end of the uh, 19th century, but this is when it really starts. I mean, this is 50, his body has been dead for 50 years. Yeah. Photos, doctors, doctors reports, and they can't explain it. So, and and the funny thing is that some of the the articles make note that even though the grave literally that he's in is rusting and it's decomposing, his body isn't. Well, And, and still flexible, still flexible, still like it's, it's incredible. Like it's, Rigor mortis kicks him pretty soon after death. Like, it, oh yeah, we got our our buddy uh, Father Ricky up in Pennsylvania who works in a funeral home, and he talks about the dead rising, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. Mean- <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, like just like the stiffening, like everything yeah. stiffens up. Like your body stops lubricating joints; it stops doing all these things. And that like that happens very. All the things you take for granted as a living human being, yeah, uh, they just stop when you are no longer a living human being. So. And it's literally the grave is open four times between 1950 and 1955, so they're they're opening it, they're documenting, uh, and then the last time you see his body being examined is in 1965, and they're still seeing that there's nothing like it's completely well. Yeah, we know intact. We, from from the records that we have is when they 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 see the this um, ooze, so to speak. I don't know what other technical or I don't know if there's a holy term you use for that or not, but there's an ooze. There's a particular fluid that's that's seeping from his body, but his body never decays while that ooze is being is seeping for decades, decades from his body. And it's you like when people that are sick touch it, they get healed. Now, there are some folks that would instantly say that is just superstition. I don't believe that there's nothing like that in the Bible. Well, I'll just do like that, Caleb. Did you did did, did we catch that? Yes. <sighs> did you catch that? Okay. I think so. Okay. That sigh right there is because I can hear the Old Testament when the dead the dead man is thrown into the the t- tomb of Elisha, yeah. hits Elisha's bones and comes back to life. Right. And so this whole dynamic of a liquid seeping from a non decaying monk's body that heals the sick is precisely designed to be a mystery so that we say, what? Because it's not a wonder unless you wonder. It's not a wonder unless you wonder. And so we can see with this kind of testimony, these kinds of uh, reports and the data that comes with it, his body does begin to decay in the 1960s. But up until that point, here's the fluid coming out of this incorrupt person, and people are still being healed because of it. And it gives us a testimony that Christ is the King. He is the Lord. Now, do we need these kinds of signs and wonders to affirm what the Scripture plainly teaches? No, you don't need that any more than you need salt on bland food. But it sure is nice when you season your conversations with salt, when God does these kinds of things that no one was anticipating or expecting. And it causes us to pause for a moment and reflect upon his majesty. And that's what's happening with a guy like St. Charbel. And he's got, he's got relics scattered all across the, the Catholic world. So if you go to Priest Field here in Jefferson County or go out to Mount St. Mary's in Thurmont, I know those two places have relics specifically from his body since it has decomposed and has, he's been made a saint. Uh, when, when was he made a saint again? 77 when it was finally canonized okay 
and that's in Roman, the Roman Catholic Church. He's not celebrated on the Anglican calendars, and I don't believe he's celebrated on the Orthodox calendars either, either right? Just Rome. Yeah, it's just Rome. Just Rome. Um, because he, even though he's in Lebanon, he's an Eastern, Eastern Catholic monk. So here's an example of the work and the grace of the Holy Spirit in a tradition that, um, at least amongst many of the, the evangelicals I knew and have known, would say, well, God's not at work with those folks. Well, hold on. Slow that stereotype down. Matter of fact, you should get rid of it altogether and do a little bit, a little bit more research, and you're going to come up with a guy like this. And this isn't just hagiography from the 4th century or the, the 16th century. This is something that we have documented evidence of. And I think that what stands out so much with this is how like sobering. Like it, there's no, It's not flashy. It's a man who lives his life in solitude, and his body later on, it's to no, like no recognition of his own. Yeah. Like, what does a dead person have to be? It's, I guess it's cool, but it really, it doesn't, like, it, I mean, it's nice. I mean, I, right. people are like, oh, I want people to remember me after I die. Like, okay, good for you. But it, it guess what? It's not really going to do you any good. Like, it's not going to really impact you, but it's just so, it's not, like, it's not flashy. It's not, right. it's just very sobering, I think would probably be the, he, the best way to describe it. Like, it's not, it's not insane. Yeah, I think one of the things that, especially with these saints that we're looking at, is how they just sought to live their life with Christ. And then in the end, God truly uses them in unique and special ways. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, they were not trying to put on a show. In fact, if anything, most of them were trying to detract from themselves yeah. and saying, you know, get me away from these people so I can concentrate on my time with God, praying for God. And in fact, uh, Charbel was very much devoted to to the Eucharist. In fact, what was seven days before he died, um, he was that's when he had his major stroke that set him aside. But doing that alone, saying, you know, this is my service unto God, not seeking attention, but to serve the people via the Eucharist. And um and then lo and behold, you know, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And but it's not at their own doing and not at their own thought, well if I humble myself, God's going to exalt. Mm -hmm. I mean no, they just they just humble themselves, and God still gets and does get all the credit. That that's what's incredible, right? I mean, one of the I mean, we we in the church circles that we've been in, we've seen God answer prayer and do miracles. I've never been around somebody who died, and decades later, their remains were still a means that God was working through, and all of that was in spite of the will of the corpse. Like, what will is there? That's, that's not the person that's doing that. And that should be a lesson to all of our charismatic friends who are pursuing manifestations of the Spirit. You've got to get your carnal self out of the way. And you, you've got to die. You've got to carry your cross daily and pursue Christ intentionally and, and stop living in this idea, well, I just can't. Well, you're right. You can't. So you have to consciously rely upon grace. And relying upon grace leads you more in a more profound way into the death of Jesus, not just academically, but experientially. And then you share in his resurrection, and you get just a, a first fruit, just a sliver of that with something like this. So this is what will is he exercising to make this happen? This, this is sovereign. It goes back to Paul's words, you know, that I may know him, you know, and join in his suffering. Yeah. And understand the, you know, and understand the power of his resurrection. Caleb, I know when we were up at, I think it was the Mount last year. Yes. And and you first heard about about Saint Charbel. What was your what was your takeaway from that? I don't know. I was. My thing is, I I mean, because I was more towards like you know eighteen hundreds or so. Like, okay, I mean, maybe people kind of got a little crazy, but because I'm I'm usually skeptical of everything. I mean, you know, people who can just jump into stuff, good for them. I'm way, I don't know, maybe cynical. I don't know, but. That so what like, you're saying is you you thought this could have been on par with UFO sightings? Yeah, I mean it could have been right. fake. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, like, I'd rather do the, the research and double down on something that actually is real that we mm -hmm. know and we can prove than to try to go in, you know, on something that it could be. But I don't know. I mean, it's nice to think about, but this stuff it's crazy because then you actually have it's recent, especially in the 1950s, where it's like we at least have a decent understanding of you know mm -hmm. medicine. You know, the mind really not so much. That didn't come really towards more in the 70s. I mean, they're still giving people like lobotomies and stuff. But uh, <laughs> my but my goodness, in the 1950s, we could tell if someone was dead or not. We understood what this cave was. 
<laughs> we've known him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I got but you. you know what I'm saying? But <laughs> right. like seeing that stuff and then also seeing the fact of like, there's, I think it's just the mystery of it that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, there's like this weird goo coming out of his, coming out of him. And someone's like, just touches it. <laughs> and they're like, I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't. I would I probably have right. gloves on if I did. I wouldn't, t- but then I wouldn't, but, you know, gotten a miracle happen there. But it's, it's the whole story because, like, uh, when I first heard the story, yeah. I was like, "Oh, this body." They just see. Like, I thought it was just like, "Oh, look at this." There's some some blood oozing out of this casket. Yeah, Caleb, your reaction is right. Like, do not like those. They get to keep their bodily fluids. Like, those are theirs. Like, that is not for you to touch. Yeah. But it's the whole picture. It's the bright light coming from his his tomb. All of it, and then opening it up and saying, "Oh wow, he hasn't decomposed." Oh wow, look at this! Like it's the full picture. I, yeah, it's l- a little bit less nonsensical, but it's still a bold move to start annoying right. people with uh, a random ooze coming from someone's dead right. body, um, like the casket and the fabrics decaying, but not his body. And which, right. I mean, for those who don't know, rust is like a living thing. So the fact it's showing that something is actually a lot. Like it's not like a vacuum or some sort of weird case scenario. Something living is also decaying around him it's um the three children that had the vision of the blessed virgin in fatima the 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 young girl who passed away i can't think of her name at the moment but she was also considered to be incorrupt and there's photos when they exhumed her tomb you know a couple decades after she was buried she died uh, in the spanish flu in 1918 so when they exhumed her remains you know some decades later she still looked like like she there was no de- she a little girl there was there was no decomposition so there's multiple cases now this isn't like every third person okay don't don't misunderstand me but there's multiple cases (laughs) of incorrupt after death for various times through christian history and this happens to be one where we have some some good details on yeah and i think the other thing is just it goes away yeah they open up in 65 where 65 or 66 and then by 1975 the only thing that remains is a skeleton yeah how do you explain it right we don't. We just accept the mystery. Our enlightenment minds do not like it. No, they don't. We di- well, they dislike it so much. They're like, you just go with gut reaction. Uh, Caleb went with a liars. <laughs> like, this is witchcraft. Or th- this, like, is, th- this is a new form of quantum mechanics that can't account for the translation of particles from places. Yeah, no, I got you. Well, I wasn't calling everybody a liar. I was just like, <laughs> maybe. Right. You know, it could. But that's what well, your that brain... Like, 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 your, well, your brain immediately... Because you have one or two options. Well, the first is... I think the correct one, which is the wonder. Yeah. And then the other one is to say, oh, that's not real. That's fake. Yeah. Yeah. But it opens the mind to the possible. I think that's, especially a lot of people who are maybe doubters like me. But I mean, the, at least I'll say that about myself. Like, if it is, like, if we can prove, like, all right, I'll believe it. You know, I'm, like, I'm not sitting here saying, like, it's completely impossible. It can never be done. And that's one of the effects of wonder, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to say, it really, it really should open our minds to that. But, but so much, so many of us have been raised with the idea, you know, the skeptical aspect. I want to see proof. I've got to have something concrete that, in many respects, we do lose that sense of wonder. You know, we've got to look for an ex- explanation. You know, to us, the wonder even of a beautiful sunset, to other people, say, oh, well, that's just the light refraction through, mm-hmm. you know, the atmosphere and through the clouds, et cetera, as opposed to saying, you know, look at the beauty of this. You know, do we look at the beauty of it or do we look the fa- or the quote unquote, what we think are facts around it? And I think there's some other interesting miracles. So obviously there's people who are praying and they're touching his, his body or the inner getting healed. So that's kind of an interesting, but uh, interesting that happened in 1994. Okay. Uh, during a pilgrimage. To, I remember 1994. I don't remember eight, 1898, but I remember 1994. Uh, I'm pretty sure at that point, my parents were still tending to my diapers. So. Okay. <laughs> um, so in 1994, uh, someone made a... Uh, hermitage to one of the the shrines that they had for him and he had an out-of-body experience he's transported to another world sees a bright light hold on hold on they made a pilgrimage to his hermitage they went to where he stayed or there was an they started they set up i don't know the exact date but in 1994 they go where he lived or they go to his tomb one of his statues okay all right i'm looking i'm like i'm reading it right now just to get the detail so we're not lying to any of you trying to keep a a good good facts fact checking so they go to near one of his statues that they have of him that is you know, dedicated to him as a saint he has an out of body experience next right near the statue right next to it he rolls up his sleeve in the car afterwards and he saw the imprint of five fingers he goes to the doctor and the doctor's like this is 
like third degree burn on her arm, but it causes him no pain. Okay. And didn't cause the man any pain who had the vision. He just rolled it up, looked at it, looked like third degree burn on his arm, no pain whatsoever. And it goes back to normal. Well, in fact, it even mentions about it would come back and sometimes it, it could be seen and other times it went away even later on. I've not heard of this one. This is a new one to me. Yeah, I've not heard of this. Yeah. Okay. So you're but, saying that he had the the handprint on his body that would appear and disappear. Yeah. The initial look at it by the, the physician was that it was a third degree burn. And they don't think that mm-hmm. it was demonic because that's one of the signs of being infested with a demon, lacerations and prints on the body. No, in fact, uh, I think it makes reference to it about St. Charbel even said, spoke to him on something in that regard. I'm not sure exactly what it was said to him, but he has many visions of Charbel. Oh, I got you. Yes. So what so you're saying having, is at the shrine, yeah. he has an experience with a saint in, this in the bolsters, spirit. Yes. And this bolsters him for, the other thing, it bolsters him for ministry. Like he, it's not like he just. Was he a priest? Yeah. Deacon or something? Just, uh, it just says that he was a Lebanese Maronite Catholic man. Okay. By the name of uh, Raymond Nader. He goes on to start an institution called the Family of Saint Charbel, and it's a evangelistic mission inspired by the saint. Okay, I'll be honest with you; that doesn't quite sound demonic to me. Like usually, demons don't go, "Hey, go evangelize." You know, that's not usually a side effect of demonic encounter. It's something for people to think on, isn't it? I just it's it's interesting the things that are happening around, not just to him, to his body, but even you start looking at second, third effects of even people visiting and remembering his life and service to the Lord, things that are happening to them that are bolstering them for mission. Well, here's something for our listeners to think on and pray on. Let's move now to our second saint for this episode. All right, so our second, the second saint we want to talk about is Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Now, he is a 20th century figure who very, very significant era of the 20th century that he lives in. So when he is a young man in Rome, and we're going to bounce around throughout his life here for as we talk about him, so it's not going to be chronological here. But in about 1917 or so, he's in Rome before the Italian state has given control of Vatican City to the papacy. So a lot of people are unaware of the actual history here, that after the collapse of the papal states, and the whole conflict with Napoleon and all this kind of stuff and European history. Then the rise of the Italian government, Rome was not its own independent city-state essentially as it is today. That happens later, right, in the 20th century. Well, Colby is in Rome in 1917 or 18 when it's still under the control of the Italian government. And this is important because he's there when Marxists are protesting in the square, like that wouldn't happen today, but they're protesting in the square with signs saying that, you know, the mother of God and St. Michael, so the Blessed Virgin and Michael, the archangel, are going to be overthrown by Marx, Marx's ideology and Lucifer and this kind of stuff. Uh, the Freemasons were heavily involved in that. A lot of that stuff's going on when he's a young man in Rome. Well, you get World War One, and then he does some, we'll talk about, I'll let you bring that up here in a minute with some of the stuff you've uh, you've seen when you were over there. But he gets some time in Japan. We'll talk about that. And then he ends up dying during World War II because he gives his life in exchange for another prisoner. And the man who lives because of it lives until 1993? He's, he's at his... What is the commemoration or the, the ceremony in which he becomes right. a saint? So the man that Colby gives his life for goes on to live a long, long time. And Colby gives his life for him because the man has a wife and two sons. Well, his wife and his sons die. Before, they die within years uh, because of the war. And then he goes on and lives and, and basically dedicates a large chunk of what he does to celebrating and honoring this man that gave his life for him. But in that span of Maximilian Kolbe's life, you have him sketching on newspaper on, on paper clippings how to build rocket engines in the early 1900s that become the, the same ideas that get used by the Germans and later the Americans for getting us to the moon, that kind of stuff. So here he is sketching that stuff out as a young man and then goes on to become St. Kolbe. So I think that's a good intro for him. One of the things that's particular about him is his devotion. Now, devotion in Roman Catholic doctrine is, well, 
let me keep going and I'll come back and explain it this way. He has a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and believes that the Franciscans, the order he was a part of, they should all take a, a basically a vow or a, a consecration, meaning they set apart their lives to live in a devoted way to the Immaculata, as they call it, meaning Mary's Immaculate Heart. So what is that? Well, it's a reference to the Gospel of Luke, where Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own soul also, meaning she's going to, as Christ is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel, she will suffer as he's suffering, which you see happening at the cross, notably in John's Gospel. And so the the Roman, uh, it's been a devotion in Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches that people, when they consecrate themselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, what they're saying is they are living lives of total dependence and obedience to whatever Jesus says. And people say, well, you don't need to look, think about Mary to do that. Well, so let me parallel it now, okay? In in our world, and I want to do a whole episode on this topic, Caleb, so let's make sure we... we you remind me in case I forget in a couple of weeks, okay? I'll try my best. Thank you. We, as Americans, by and large, do exactly the same thing, but not to Mary, but to Libertas, the Statue of Liberty. We put our hand over our heart, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, and then we filter even our Christian living, not on the basis of everything that Jesus says, but on the basis of what civil liberties we have through the mediation of Lady Liberty. And Lady Liberty has an actual Latin name, you know, Libertas. She's the Statue of Liberty here. And we live in that sense of what do I have personal freedom to do? Therefore, I have the license to do as I want. This is how it's been filtered today. So we have a comparable way that we do it, but you don't see people, you know, breaking out prayers to to the Statue of Liberty because of the Enlightenment and the way that shapes uh, devotional aspects, as it were. So we approach God the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. I mean, this is how we how we couch the language. But then when we practically, practically go to obey that as Americans, we often don't do that through the example established in Scripture, but through American civil liberties, from the way that we plant churches to the way that we make disciples to the way that we uh, use the gifts of the Spirit or are used by them. And I refer this directly back to what we just said about St. Charbel and this guy's uh, healing ministry and how he hid from the cameras. And so you can see an exact opposite parallel here of when we live through the mediation of Lady Liberty, to use the this paradigm that Colby uses for the Immaculate Heart of Mary— and I'm not trying to advocate one way or the other for it, but I'm saying translate the ideas and you see that we are engaged in identical practices with different outcomes because we're using a different set of contours, a different set of, of ideas to shape, to shape the parameters. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Pretty much. You know, okay. Well, you see it in almost all societies. Yeah. There's something that they're attached to and it's, everything they do is filtered from that. Yeah. And without going into more Marian doctrine, through Christian history, you can see when the church um, is exalting Mary, and when the church is exalting the understanding of the church, you see an ebb and a flow through history. So she gets exalted and other things decline, or the other things are exalted and she declines, and we happen to live in one of those seams, especially with the, the tradition that we're a part of. So we would obviously acknowledge the Blessed Virgin Mary as the Theotokos, the Mother of God. We did a whole podcast on this. But what we see here as a mediator that we go through to get to God? No, no, not at all. But we would see her as the door of heaven, according to one of the old, uh, old English poems, not because we go through her to get to heaven, but because heaven came through her to get to earth. You, you see, so there's that, that. So when we, if we were to, from an Anglican perspective, and I realize that's difficult because you got about a thousand Anglicans like you do ice cream flavors. But <laughs> if we were to look at this from a broadly Anglican perspective, we could see that Mary's example as something that we should emulate is highly admirable and something that we ought to do in the same way that our Bible scholars love the Apostle Paul and read everything through Paul's letters. We would critique that and say, no, you need to factor in the general epistles too, not just Paul, because you, or, or, or not Paul to the exclusion of Acts. It's got to be comprehensive. So one of the, the, the benefits of looking at uh, St. Colby's perspective here is he's living in a time 
where the Immaculate Heart of Mary becomes an anchor point for him and the monks and the Christians that he's in working with, because it's set in contrast to the atheism and the Marxism that's running rampant across Europe. So I think that's a fair introduction to the idea and to set it in with good parameters as we talk more about him specifically. Yeah, for sure. He's half Polish and half German, which becomes significant because you're talking about when all these riots, these protests are happening in Italy while he's there. At the same time, his father is actually fighting for Polish independence from the like Russia, and his father is caught mm-hmm. and killed during this time. It's a very difficult time of his life. It's not like he's doing all of these things in a vacuum. He is very much so impacted by the unrest in the world. Yeah. The vision when he's a, a young boy. Yeah, that's even, yeah. That, that, that happens even before. That's actually, he's 12. And it's after his uh, first communion, and he has a vision of Virgin Mary coming to him with that. Two- that would probably probably explain his devotion to her obedience. A hundred percent. It comes with two crowns, and one is white and one is red, and asks him, will you take these? And he says, I will take both of them. And he's, his conclusion or what he understood from the vision was that the white stood for continued purity and the red stood for martyrdom. Except 12 years old, he says, I'll take both. What I think is interesting about not only looking at Colby, but even as we look at the other two priests, all of them were affected when they were young mm-hmm. people. I mean, young men, I guess you would call them. You know, and even at t- teenage years. And I think it really sh- should really speak to us in regards toward how we raise our own children in such a way that they are in communion with God and communion with Christ. You know, so God can not only speak to them, but maybe speak to them in regards toward what he wants them to do later on in life. But encouraging that as opposed to so many times, well, we'll let them make their decision when they get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, these kids have been raised in such a way that they're saying 13 years of age, uh, I think Pew was even younger when he said, this is my heart, basically my heart's desire. Is to serve God. What do you say to a 13-year-old who comes to you and says, I just had a vision vision of the Blessed Virgin, and she said, I need to live a life that's going to end up in martyrdom. Or or he presents it as, he, he chose. Yeah. <laughs> He's cho- like, what do you say to your 13-year-old? I'd say, God be with you. <laughs> <laughs> and Lord have mercy. <laughs> that's right. I mean, and and this, is, this is another benefit of looking at something that's in more recent contemporary history. Even with the, the, the political issues and the philosophies that he's dealing with, we are still dealing with today. And if God was indeed at work in him, and we think that he was, of course, the Roman Catholic Church does, but if we were to say, yes, we we perceive that grace, what is the translation of that grace into our context right now, just a few decades later? Because I don't know about, I don't know if Caleb, if, if this is true for you, maybe Adam, but I know Father Mitch and I have known lots of people who fought in World War II, spent time with them. I mean, this, is, this isn't like a long time ago, even though everybody under the age of 25 is like, oh, World War II, that was... No, 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 no. That's not really as long ago as you think it was. And so this is, this is another important example of looking, important example in looking at Colby's life. Let, let's talk about how he gets to Japan. Are you guys familiar with that? Yes. So, well, let's... Yeah, and then we'll come back how he how, why he leaves. But let's let's jump into his his ministry in Japan. Yeah, so um, even a little bit before that, he he's ordained a priest in 1918, and this is about the time when he's in Rome, and he's kind of bouncing between there and Poland. Oh, um, do but- you know what happened when he was in Rome in 1918? Not not the riot. You know what else happened while he was there? It was one of the first. I think it was the first, or real close to it, the first times a move a moving picture a movie was shown in Rome. When it was he, he was there, and he records in his journal. I think it's in his journal or a letter to somebody. He records how the church needs to make use of that technology to share the gospel. Otherwise, it will be used for worldly purposes. Interesting. Yes, but he, around that time, he also he catches uh, tuberculosis. This is pre-antibiotic, so he's struggling with this. And back then, your solution to for dealing with that was walk um, uh, it off, drink water, change your socks, cough it out. <laughs> Pretty much. And so he he ends up scarred for the rest of his life from it in his respiratory system. But that doesn't stop him. He actually, he starts a mission to start planting other monasteries. So he and I believe it was four other, three or four other men went to Japan to plant a 
Monastery. This, this is after he's gotten a monastery going in Poland. Yeah, so he yeah. goes to Poland, gets one there, and actually this uh, monastery in Poland is going to be one of the largest in the world. But he has nothing when he does it. Like As I understand it, he's got a handful of guys that are dirt poor Yes, and complain about He's, he basically teaches them to stop complaining about being broke all the time. And that's part of their, their <laughs> vows. And, and, but then ends up raising up a monastery that is, um, is a force to be reckoned with. It's, it's so large. It's completely self-sustaining and even has its own fire department. There you go. I thought that was really interesting. I'm go. like, that's what, like, you know you've arrived. <laughs> uh, you know your monastery <laughs> literally has its own fire department. <laughs> Um, so he's he's kind of bouncing around. He's planting this. He definitely has like that entrepreneur entrepreneurial uh, spirit to him, and he's he's a intellectual force to be reckoned with. Like he's a professor. He has his doctorate in philosophy and his doctorate in theology. So he's a very intelligent man. And I would recommend that our listeners who have difficulty with his uh, devotion to the Immaculate Heart. That's fine. As far as I mean, that, okay. But if you're going to disagree theologically with someone, disagree with them on par. With their theological study, don't just give a couple proof-texted scriptures and assume that you automatically understand the complexity of what's being said. Actually, hear what they're saying, and then you're either going to find that you agree with them or that you don't. But you will have done it with intellectual honesty. Because more than likely, if you were having an intellectual conversation with him, he would probably destroy you. Because <laughs> he's a smart guy, like he's very intelligent. So after he's doing his his work in Poland, he then goes to Japan, and you might know the name of the city that he um he planted in. Do you know where he went, Caleb? Because you were in Japan. Well, it's either Tokyo, Hiroshima. It's either sorry, Hiroshima. <laughs> Thanks, Caleb, for that uh, proper pronunciation. And then the other one. <laughs> 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 the, it, you, were, you were correct. It is <laughs> the, the other, other one. one. <laughs> oh. So Nagasaki, yeah. and um, and they didn't want to send him because the man didn't speak a lick of Japanese. Which is interesting because the other thing about him that you need to know is that mass communications is like his thing. Yeah. Like he everywhere he goes, he starts um, massive pamphlets, like newspapers or printing press, yeah. printing press yeah. and radio. Yeah, yeah. Which um. Something you should know to do that, you need to know the language of the local population around you. That's usually a good starting point. Yeah. Um, but he, he has a vision while he's there, right? Yeah. He gets to Nagasaki and he has a vision of fire destroying the city. And he's, he's there looking for where they should put the monastery he's going to start, the printing house and all that kind of stuff he does. And so he, he sees fire destroying the city and decides not to set up in the middle of town where space was looking like it was going to work out. Goes up into the mountains. And so when they drop the bomb, his monastery is fine. Like they survive it. Mm-hmm. Now there is, I don't know their names, but I, I don't, and I don't know if it was a church that he established because one of the highest centers population wise for Christians in Japan happened to be Nagasaki when the, the atomic bomb was dropped. We're talking lots of Christians were there. There is, there's a, a historical account that there were three Roman Catholic priests in a in the church in the afternoon praying their rosaries when the bomb went off the building stood and they're fine they survived the atomic explosion and lived out their days to be old men and while everything else around them was decimated there's another example of why'd that happen that's the point like that's part of what's going on but in in, in this case uh colby you know with his lung condition hikes up and down the side of a mountain while he's there because that's where they set up the monastery because of the fire that he saw in the city as a vision. And while he's there for, for a few years and then ends up going back to Poland. And when we say go back, this isn't like a, a, a three hour, a three hour drive or a three hour plane flight. <laughs> I mean, this is a long time to get there and, and back. I believe it took what, three to four months is yeah. what the journey time took him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's doing this with like nothing. Right. It's interesting. And his trip back to Poland is really what puts him on, well, literally on the calendar. Yeah, his he doesn't go back. So his entire life, he is just engaging political ideas, engaging philosophical ideas. And so when he's coming back to Poland is when you're starting to see the Germans pushing through and he's vocal. He doesn't stay quiet. He's still writing anti Marxist, anti Nazi literature. He's taking in war refugees to like at one point he had 3000 refugees at the monastery there in Poland 
two-thirds of them are Jews. He is just working. He's not just sitting idly in that situation. He is engaging the community. He is not just intellectually, but he is meeting the needs. This this self-sustaining monastery is now feeding those who are war refugees. And contrast that with, again, with St. Charbel, who basically is a hermit. So we have to be discerning to know what the Lord is calling us into to discern those times and seasons, right? Right. Correct. So he ends up in Auschwitz. Yes. No. So, yes. Yeah. So yep. he, he was in Krakow, um, if, which is very near. That's the, kind of the next town near to, um, to Auschwitz. That's very, so that's, he got sent to the camp because he's very vocal. And the interesting point is I said he was half German and half Polish. Part of what people were urging him to do, he even had the opportunity to become, to accept his German heritage, get some rights, but instead doesn't. He takes the suffering, so they send him to the concentration camp in Auschwitz. And some of the he's he's there, and then some of the camps nearby. But he ends up the final days of his life actually at Auschwitz, the the main camp there, giving his food to to other prisoners, sharing. I mean, I believe what they're running off of a day under hard labor was a cup of coffee in the morning, a watered down bowl of soup, small bowl of soup, and a little bit of bread. And he shares it. He shares it. He'll either share it or he will be the last one in line. So many times since he's the last one in line, he gets nothing to eat. That is very common. At night, he would crawl around their their bunks. And if you know, if you've ever seen pictures of it, I've actually, I've been there and it's just these bunks that are five or six high all the way to the ceiling. And he would crawl around and walk up to people and said, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Catholic priest. Can I pray with you? Can I pray? That's what he would do at night. And then during the day, he would work, give his food away, give his things away, and they would find him praying with people throughout the night. Incredible. And when he is, uh, when he gives his life in exchange for the prisoner's number who was called, that's what they would do. They would call your number, and the people whose numbers were called were, were executed. So his the number of uh, a fellow prisoners called, and he goes, walks right up to the, the officer in charge and offers himself in place of the man, which was essentially taboo and forbidden. You didn't just approach the officers. So he breaks protocol. And they weren't sure what was going to happen because the man who was in charge was notoriously not kind. Well, he lets he lets Colby take his place. And while he and the other, is it 14 men? It's 10, so. 10 men. 10 men. Are naked in a, in a chamber room. It's not a gas chamber, but they're in there and they starve them to death. And while they're starving these men to death, he's teaching them all the Lord's Prayer, uh, Hail Mary. Uh, basically, they're, uh, they're praying and, and they just start dying. And he is the la- and singing, I should say. He teaches him to sing, and so you could hear basically a choir of men dying, singing praises to God because of his influence while he's there. They go in and they have to give him a lethal injection to kill him because he's the last one that's left alive after was it fourteen days? I think he's still alive. It was fourteen there. days, and he's still yeah. he's living. Yeah, and this is a man who's been giving away his food. He actually has a disadvantage if you think about it because he has been regularly giving away his food. And eating less than everybody else. So, so here's an example of somebody who does not have a legacy of ooze coming from his body and bright lights and miraculous things that cause everyone to go, wow, but somebody who lives a life of such exemplary sacrifice that we have to sit back and say, how did he do that? And I think the interesting thing is not just that, but how he dies. What typically happened in those starvation chambers, which is normal. So when the people would, when somebody would escape, they would put all those people in the starvation chamber, and the idea is they stayed there until they caught the person who ran away. They, no one's ever recorded surviving a starvation chamber. They never find the people, or they never let them out. And what usually happens is they're literally drinking their own urine to stay alive. With, with his particular group, none of that happens. These men, like, indignity, and such a respect is gained for him through that that the German soldiers are making excuses to leave the room when they give him the lethal injection because of the life that he's lived in captivity. Like these are, I mean, we're talking about hardened yeah. elite yeah. German soldiers. These camps are run by the SS. So here's our second example today and the kind of saintly life to, to recommend to our listeners to, to do some research and some study on. Let's move on to number three. Caleb, our listeners may not have picked it up, but this one's going to be a little longer than usual. But these guys are worth it. Yes. Here's number three. Padre Pio. Padre Pio. Saint Pio, as he's as he is now, of Petroclina. Here's another 20th century figure. Very influential. Also a monk. 
who has experiences with God as a young boy, when he is in the monastery, and he's like, he's just there, you know, he's not there long in the course of a lifetime. He's not there long. He has a vision where his, his body is pierced with a sword, lance, a spear. And when he comes out of that, it's not there. It's not long after he begins to have the stigmata. Well, what are stigmata? Stigmata is when the wounds of Christ appear in the hands or hands inside or hands, feet inside, and sometimes even occasionally on the brow. Uh, so the wounds that Christ has on the cross, and there are example of examples of stigmata, again, throughout Christian history, Francis of Assisi is one of them. Some people have speculated, and I, I think Paul's being a bit metaphorical here, I don't think he's being literal, but they've speculated that Paul may have because he says he bears in his body the marks of Christ. I don't think Paul's talking about stigmata, because I think if he was there would be something else in Scripture testifying to that. I don't think that that's the kind of thing that they would have left just as a passing comment. Having said that, move forward through Christian history, there's many. And and many stigmatists through history have been women. Padre Pio happens to be one of the most well-known. Often, the stigmatists tend to be used in miracles of healing, powerful healing and, and other kinds of miracle ministries. There was an Anglican, I think she was a nun, who there's video of her it's a silent video there's no audio she had stigmata and she was uh at an episcopal church an anglican church here in the 1950s in the united states praying for people at the altar rail and they were being healed i can't think of her name at the moment but pio is one of these guys it's well known there should be a movie coming out about him soon uh caleb and shia labeouf is going to be playing padre pio he's your fave if that's what they want it's all it was all over tiktok the a uh, couple months ago he was hanging out with some stirs, uh, some monks, learning about monk life. But Pio, the Vatican, thought he was a fake. How do you like that? They thought he was faking. So they made him uh, bind, like hide, hide the wounds in his hands because you could see through them. There's photos where you can see through the holes in his hands. So they made him hide basically in the monastery. So he ends up then, bas- not basically, but essentially, re- hearing confessions all the time. And if you came in and you were as in the midst of confession, you weren't really saying or really confessing your true sin, he would, use, through word of knowledge, call the person out and saying, you're not repenting and not grant the absolution until they, they genuinely repented. He was, he's reported to have bilocated. So what is bilocation? Well, where he's seen in two places at once. Again, all of this stuff is documented. You're like, what? Well, was Philip translated? Was he moved by the Spirit in Acts chapter 8? Well, the Bible says that he was. Well, Pio is another one of these guys. It's, it almost reminds me of stories about of Smith Wigglesworth, for those who are familiar with that, that old Pentecostal preacher, is that some of them are so crazy that, okay, they're either fabrications or they're true. Like, there's no way to be middle, middle of the way about it. There's just so much, and part of it is the so much represents that there were things that were extra, extraordinary that were happening. And P.O.'s of the same, and, and it's similar, that there's such a, a massive amount of miracles going on that it has to be something that we need to reckon with. So there's ample video. You could jump on YouTube and you can see the man with the stigmata, you know, the bloody garments around his, his hands while he's celebrating the Mass, celebrating the Eucharist. Just the, the, the nature of his life and service and the pain, by the way. So it's not just that there's these wounds that he has. He feels the pain of them. And so contemporaries and the people that served him at the table and just in his, his priestly service would talk about when he would be preparing for the Eucharist, the moment he put his stole or his chasuble on, it was as if he was carrying in an even more pronounced way the yoke of the Lord you know, as he was carrying the cross when he would go to the table. And, so when, and when he would be at the table consecrating the elements, there's many accounts where he would be there before the Lord, in front of the church for hours, and nobody would move. They wouldn't leave. There'd be such a descending of God's presence upon the people that he's just there at the table with the consecrated elements, and nobody's moving. I mean, just a a very, very profound depth of spiritual life and strength. You'd call the man a mystic, is what you would say. And it's the kind of thing that, in, this, in the same way with um, Maximilian Kolbe, it starts when he was a, he's a kid. So what would give us his, um, his birth and his, his death? What are, what are the years here? He was born in 1887, 
and passes in 1968. He was uh, 81 when he passed away. He knew John Paul II. They, they had some some time together. I knew a lot of that. He knew some of the uh, he knew the the surviving lady, which I can remember her name uh, from Fatima. So he, very very connected with tw- other 20th century Roman Catholic figures. I think it's very interesting how the Catholic Church wanted to deny. And all means because of the age. I mean, you know, we're yeah. considering in the 50s, 60s, you know, going to deny the fact that he did have the stigmatas, but also the fact that, and like you were talking about in the confessions, but also people, because the Catholics kept trying to shove him back to the side, well, people would go to him for like for those confessions, but they would also go and receive healings, yeah. which totally frustrated him. And so they kept trying to separate him even further away from the people. And, you know, by God's grace, you know, People wouldn't weren't listening to the church, but saying, "But you know, I'm calling out to God for this, and mm-hmm. He's the man you go to." Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons the Roman Catholics there in the it would have been early 20th century when he's being shut away, and it's for a long time, is because of what I think it's Pope Leo the Thirteenth referred to as the American heresy in in the 18, late 1800s, and the American heresy is today what we call modernism. So if you could not prove it scientifically it was not real and it was the, it was when the culture western culture began to step away in the church away from revelation as a means of understanding and move towards scientism and empiricism and that was having strong strong influence in roman catholic circles it had already been taking place in the german churches because of higher text criticism it was in the church of england at that point already with the the rise of the new kind of latitudinarianism that was coming so you could be broad church we've talked about that in the past here about the rejection of the virgin birth the rejection of christ's miracles of of his bodily resurrection etc cetera, etc cetera. well that was making its way into large sections of the roman catholic ideologies and stigmata. Well, that's all medieval stuff. That's all hocus pocus. That's all, you know, we don't need that. So it's, it's significant. You know, we talked last week about the rise of the Pentecostal movement as a means, I think in a lot of ways to correct that in American Protestantism. I think a guy like Pio is a way that God did something that captured the attention of the Roman Catholic world that they couldn't just turn away from. Charbel was in Lebanon. I mean, he's on the other side of the Mediterranean. Pio He's in Western Europe, so it, I, I think that's part of the dynamic that, that's happening here. Because you you go from that kind of anti-supernatural, and it's not that they're all anti-supernatural. I think they're just having a hard time with Pio because of the nature of what's happening to him. But you go from that kind of hide yourself away to, in a couple of decades, to a guy like John Paul II. And the, the papal preacher and the papal household since John Paul has been was the Pope, and he's still there now. Is a, is a man by the name of um, Ranero Cantalamesa, and Cantalamesa is a significant voice in Roman Catholic, in the Roman Catholic Charismatic Renewal. And his book on preaching is incredible. And then his book on the Holy Spirit, Veni Creator Spiritus, one of the best books I've ever read on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when I discovered who he was, I thought, well, there you go. Here's the Scripture. And here's how the spirits breathe through tradition. Why would we stop him today? But that's a very different kind of thing that's happening. And I think Pio's kind of one of those bridge figures there for Roman Catholics. But again, for those of us who aren't Roman Catholic, but Catholic, we can look at a man like this and see what God was doing in him. Because here's the stigmata, here's the confessional, here's the miracles. We well, also builds a hospital. He doesn't have any money. Here's another example. He has no means to do this. But it comes in, and the hospital gets built, and it's an incredible, incredible work. And primarily, it's a hospital for the poor. Yes. Which I think is amazing in that respect, that <laughs> this is who our clientele will be. The Lord still cares. And it's interesting because in his life, part of the criticism that he comes under is actually by—he he takes care of the sick. That's part of what he does, even before the hospital. And so he's doing this during like the height of the um, Spanish flu, and he's buying medical supplies, and guess what he gets accused of? Putting it on his wounds, putting on yeah, it, like, yeah, right. That's it, why that, yeah, that's why the Vatican said he, he was fake. He was making him. He was using acid drips. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just, it's interesting that his ministry that he is doing is what is actually going to cause him to come under criticism. He's here's an example of a guy who obeys church authority that's wrong, and it results in more blessing. And this is an important thing to to keep in mind because again. 
to refer back to Charbel's, you know, hermitage approach, is hiding away. I'm not going to use the spiritual gifts as I have that I have as a platform for self exaltation. Pio doesn't rebel against his authorities that are wrong. He submits to them, and in submitting to them, God increases the scope of the testimony when the time is right. It's a difficult question, but it's worth asking. How do who who are independent ministers submitted to? Is your denomination a collection of churches where people do as they will, or is it something that's consciously seeking to be and to embody, so whether it's there on paper or not, uh, the fullness of apostolic succession, that you would obey your bishops, right or wrong? God put you under authority, and he'd put you there, David, to learn what to do and what not to do from Saul, inasmuch as he wants you then not to teach your son Absalom how to act. Uh, Gene Edwards did a book called A Tale of Three Kings, where he outlines that. It's incredible. I'd recommend it to anybody. Pio's life is an example here of somebody who's listening to leaders who are wrong because they are his authorities in Christ, and but God uses their, their blindness. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus of Nazareth does. He submits to the blind Pharisees and to the ignorantly prophesying Caiaphas and suffers execution at their hands but then turns around and rises from the dead. Yeah, and even you see his prayer begin to change a little bit as he's going through those difficult times. And his prayer says, take away the physical manifestations. I'll keep the pain. Like, if that's what you want me to do, if I'm supposed to experience the pain, that's fine. But the outward expression of it was causing him so much humiliation. He begins to pray that the Lord would take it from him. Yeah. The, the manifestation of it. Yeah, he wasn't looking to walk around with bloodied wounds. For, for This is, a, again, another thing to emphasize. What is the will of God, sovereignly speaking, in these issues that some people chase because they've got a, um, I don't even want to call it a Messiah complex, but they've got this, unless I have these manifestations happening, I'm not really cl- close to God. You know, whether that's prophecy, healing, tongues, something like that, or or sharing the gospel in such an offensive way, they walk around saying, I'm persecuted. Well, if you would not speak that way, (laughs) you would kind of lessen some of that. But you contrast that to these kinds of fellows. Very different. Very different. And it becomes an example for us. That's why we're talking about them. Just still, you know, I I think what really strikes me more than anything else is the humility of all three of these saints and their desires to do God's desire and not really bring attention to themselves but to continue to keeping on what God has asked them to do. Yeah. You know, even, you know, when we look at our first saint that we talked about, Charbel, just wanting to live as a hermitage, you know, and which all, in fact, he's often referred to as uh, one of the St. Anthony of the, um, mm-hmm. of the of Lebanon, basically, that where he try, you know, his prayers and everything, it's just, this is my desire. But yet what God does just, I'm sure, stupefies him. Well, it's got to stupefy all these men. Wait a minute, but God, all I'm trying to do is serve you and do what you asked me to do. And then, of course, then everybody else gets upset. Right, right. Because, wait a minute, all I'm doing is what God said to do. And they're not, and like I said, with especially with Pio, he's not trying to take it out on anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, like saying, trying to be submissive and do as they ask, and yet God still keeps. It's kind of like, you know, you almost want to pull your hair out and says, I've got to keep, you know, what can I do, God, but keep doing what you asked me to do. Right. Yeah, I, I, you bring up a really good point with these three men, and it's it's not just like they're sacrifice. It's like despite the fact that they are being physically, like they're physically suffering, they they persevere and they push on to no credit of their own. And I think the last thing, I, I, the one that really stood out to me was— well, That's the effect of grace, right? Yes. And then— contrast their continued difficulties with the way that we have a hard time having people come to church in the rain. We have a hard time with people coming to church because they feel bad. Well, unless you're contagious and you or you can't get out of bed. What and I'm not saying that to 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 use it as a means to say you dirty rotten no good person. But like come on. Put what you're the way you're living in perspective here historically and think about it. And anyone who's going to be used of the Lord to be faithful to him is going to have a certain set of particular challenges that you have to press through because that's where you're demonstrating faithfulness and perseverance. You're never going to ascend into the hill of the Lord for more fellowship with him if you're not getting through those preliminary lessons. And all three of these guys, 
you know, or call us to pay attention to that. Because in, in Charbel's case, his call is to be a hermit. It's not to be in the public arena. So his will is shaped and molded by that as he's, as he's, you know, living that lifestyle. But it's not as if he's fighting. It's temptation to go away from that into the public area and to be used miraculously. You know, it's, it's the other way around. He, he needs to be, be secluded. And so, you know, but to keep that in perspective with, 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 these, with these guys. But let, let their examples be the kinds of things that, that, that provoke us. It's definitely convicting. When you, when you think about how many things do we do to be recognized, and I'm not saying even like overtly, extremely consciously, like, like we're thinking in the very forefront of our mind, I need to be recognized. But how many times does that even play into our subconscious? Mm-hmm. And it's like these, these men didn't live their life like that. Like, it's like Mother Teresa. It's like they yeah. had every right to be selfish especially i mean charbel's a little bit different but with especially with uh, uh, colby and um and pio they had every right to be like i'm I'm done like i'm gonna be selfish now and they don't they are actively stepping forward to be selfless i think that's so convicting even when that meant they weren't gonna be recognized i mean what he literally colby literally dies in a small box on his on his knees praying but whoever thought he'd be recognized that's not what you're thinking when you're dying in a prison cell and there's the effect of, be it unto me according to thy word. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to take the time to talk about just a few examples of just some of the saints. And, um, you know, it's good to look back, especially even for anything like even just for inspiration, you know, just be motivated. These are very motivating men, I'd say. But I think that's going to do it for us this week. Once again, I'm Caleb and I'm here with... Father Mitch. Adam. And I'm Daryl. And we'll see you all next week.